I'm really, really, really excited about what we're uh, about to embark upon, but we've got a two-minute sort of video, and then I'm going to introduce my good friend John Steinreich, who's going to share for a minute, and then we're going to do a brief but hopefully inspiring message. So uh, let's watch the video. In 1517, a German priest named Martin Luther challenges the authority of the Pope and in the process starts a revolution. This was a man of conviction who was willing to die for what he believed. Luther risks his life as he questions everything from indulgences to salvation. Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. He nails his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg and sparks what we now call the Reformation. Luther essentially said that every individual person must become a pope must be the definitive interpreter of the, of the Bible. The Catholic Church denounces the reformers as heretics and seeks to snuff out those who threaten the community. The reformers struggle to hold their theological center even as radical movements like the Anabaptists gain momentum. Anabaptists were the one group that Lutherans and Catholics could all agree on as being evil. In England, King Henry VIII rejects papal authority so you end up with a very complicated patchwork of religious change. Hostility, suspicion, and lack of unity mar the Reformation. You disagree, you go home at night and you start three new churches or denominations when you argue. Truth unites, but truth also divides. Did the Reformation go too far? If we had just found a way to take in Luther's great legitimate insight, there could be a Lutheran order within Catholicism. Can the unity Jesus called for ever be achieved? Your rabbi Jesus would have never thought of this kind of way of handling disagreement. This is the Reformation, and it changed everything. That was pretty awesome. I didn't even expect that video, Kevin. Well, man, it's, I, I, it's, I pale in comparison to Martin Luther. So <laughs> I am very thankful to Kevin and David and the staff for um, putting together a Reformation Sunday. 500-year anniversaries only come once every 500 years. So it's important to remember. Um, and I, I can't imagine that there are too many people in the room here tonight who are laying awake, stressed out, like, why? Why did Martin Luther have such a beef with the Pope? You know, I, I'm sure you're not stressed out about that, and you're probably even thinking, that's a lovely video, but what in the world does that have to do with my walk today? And I'm not going to tell the story now. We'll save that for Sunday, but I'm going to give you the prequel, okay, to sort of whet your appetite. So 1517, that's the beginning of the Reformation. October 31st is the date that Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door in Wittenberg. Basically, there are 95 statements saying, these are the things that I think that the church is doing wrong, and I want to have a debate about it, and I want to get us back to a more Bible-centered concept. And he didn't get the debate, but he got the whole change of history instead. So, but Luther didn't just pop out of nowhere. We're going to go back in time couple hundred years before him. We're talking the 14th century, the 1300s AD, okay? The 1300 AD, that period was when the Canterbury Tales were written. I don't know if you remember that from high school. Old English, right? Those are stories of uh, sort of a religious pilgrimage. 
The 1300s to 14th century was the period of the Black Plague, the Black Death. Bubonic Plague swept across Europe in the 1300s, killed about 75% of the population. This was a very religious time, a very mystical time, a very kind of nervous time, but a very religious time as well. And if you were dealing with what was going on in the 14th century and you wanted a, relig a religious outlet, there was one game in town. It was the Roman Catholic Church. Controlled all of the religious activities from Southern Europe, Northern Europe, Eastern, all from basically from Italy to England, Germany, Spain, and the breadth of Europe. Well, in this period, there was an English uh, priest named John Wycliffe. And Wycliffe got it in his head that, you know what? As much as I love the church, the Bible is the supreme document that we should be following. Now, that might not sound like a radical idea to people in this room, but in the 1300s, this was absolutely a radical idea because the Roman Catholic Church had a certain way of doing things, and they didn't appreciate someone coming up with a sort of back-to-the-Bible concept. So Wycliffe himself was rather controversial, and um, he died of natural causes in the year 1384. Well... His teachings didn't actually die with him because about 30 years later, in the early 1400s, his writings ended up in the lap of a guy named Jan Hus, who lived in a region called Bohemia, which is in modern-day Czechoslovakia. Okay? And he was also a priest. And he started to absorb Wycliffe's teachings. And Hus said, yeah, I like this idea about the Bible being the supreme document for the church. I'm going to go out and teach that to the people. And his... Hus went along teaching. He also added a couple of other doctrines that the Roman Catholic authorities didn't really like, one of which was the notion of the church. The Roman Catholic idea was that the clergy and the pope, that constituted the church. But Hus said, no, no, no. I see this priesthood of believers. It's all the people, the common people and the clergy. We're all the church. And he also came up with this radical idea that Jesus Christ himself is the head and the chief authority of the church, not the pope, not the bishop, not any human authority. Now, again, these probably don't sound tremendously radical to people in 2017 in Van Nuys, California, but in the year 1414, this was outrageous. So Hus was preaching to the common people these ideas that the authorities didn't like. So they called him to a church council, a great meeting of all of the chief leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, a place called Constance in Germany in the year 1414, to basically explain why he was doing what he was doing. And he went there to explain his position, and he tried to work things out. And they said to him, well, we don't really agree with this teaching, so you're either going to recant or you're going to face some penalties. And Hus said, if you can show me from Scripture where I'm wrong... I will recant. But if you can't show me from Scripture, I'm not backing down. And he didn't. And the authorities said, well, you've made your choice. And the penalty that you will suffer is death. They declared him a heretic. They threw him in jail, starved him for a few months. And then on July 6th, 1415, they took him to the town square, bound him up to a stake, and burned him alive. And they spread his ashes into the river. It's a pretty sad story, but it's not the end. Because 102 years later, in 1517, this obscure German monk named Martin Luther started to absorb the teachings of Hus and Wycliffe. And he reintroduced this idea that the Bible is the supreme authority for the church. 
and that all people should read the Bible and understand it and live in this priesthood of believers. And unlike Hus, Luther did not burn at the stake, but instead he started a global fire that sent the word of God out into the whole world and changed human history. And if you want to hear more about the story, you have to come on Sunday, October 29th at 11 o'clock and bring your friends because it's awesome. Thank you. All right, so Tracy Miner and uh, John Steinreich bringing the heat already. Don't you love to be around people that just have passion and conviction? And I love that about our church. We are not um, a one-man or woman show. We're a priesthood of believers. And any member, be they in leadership or uh, not, can have a Costco epiphany or a somewhere, you know, epiphany and stand up for God and influence hundreds and over a year thousands of people. And that's what's great about being a part of this church. Uh, I'm really, really, really excited about this. Uh, There's a passage. uh, I've got a lot of passages. We're going to be done on time. But uh, tonight I wanted to, uh, I want to make a couple comments, but I want us to, to do a Bible study, but more from the standpoint of listening to uh, seven authors of the Bible and listening, uh, reading the scriptures as though we're listening to them share with us what they think about the Bible. It's interesting that, uh, of course, you got had Huss, you had uh, Martin Luther, all these people, they were inspired by the uh, initial authors of the Old and New Testament and many of the, most of the authors actually of the New Testament uh, suffered martyrs' deaths. It's interesting to me, I'm listening about Huss, how many people, uh, you know, because of their willingness to suffer torture or death, I mean, would we actually be Jesus followers in 2017 were it not for those people? I question whether we would, because the powers that be often aren't shaken unless people are willing to give their lives. That's a universal concept. And so it's inspiring for me to think about us looking back 500 years to people who stood for something and gave their lives for something so that perhaps now we can be those kinds of people that stand for something and are willing to give our lives for something so that 500 years from now people can look back to this little church in Van Nuys and look at it with the same, these people had the same fidelity and they had the same devotion to God as those we read about. Anyway, that's my dream. Okay, so a little commercial. Anybody like history in here? This is one of my favorite possessions. It's a magazine that I got in 2000. It's a life magazine and it's on the millennium. And uh, it has the hundred people, it lists the hundred people who changed the millennium. That's a big deal if you're on a list of 100 people that changed a thousand years. Like you have the time, man or woman of the year, right? But like of the millennium. And so I know you're dying to know who some of these, and of course it's subjective, but I I can't go through through all hundred, but I want to go through the top 10. Number 10, Thomas Jefferson. Nine, Charles Darwin. Eight, uh, Louis Pasteur. Uh, Seven, Ferdinand Magellan. Uh, Six, Isaac Newton. Five, Leonardo da Vinci. 
Four, Galileo Galilei. Three, Martin Luther. Two, Christopher Columbus and the people that the editors thought was the guy that was the most influential of the millennium was Thomas Edison and inventing the light bulb and so forth and lighting, literally lighting the whole world that had been lamp lit and, and so forth all that, all, uh, before that. So, um, but then it lists the, the hundred events that changed the millennium most. And of course, there, there are many, many things that are in here. Uh, but um, number 10, it was the invention of the compass uh, that obviously allowed people to, um, to sailors and so forth to navigate. Number nine, Hitler coming to power. And this is, this is not for good or bad. This is just influence on the millennial, regardless of whether it's a good or bad influence. Eight is the Declaration of Independence, written. Number seven was gunpowder being developed uh, in China. Six is the germ theory of disease, so the discovery in 1882, the discovery of bacteria and so forth and so on and fighting uh, germs. Um, number five, Galileo telling people, uh, basically in Copernicus, these guys saying that the earth revolved around the sun and not the reverse, which was just, you know, heretical in those days. Number four, the industrial age of the, the early, about the 1800s, United States. Number three, most influential event of the past 1,000 years, so, uh, going up to 2000, the Protestant Luther knocks down the door. So what we're studying about is these editors feel like, and this, this is not you know, having to do with religion, this is just world impact. And they're saying that the third most influential human act of that past thousand years was this dude nailing these 95 theses to the All Saints Church door in Wittenberg, Germany, 500 years ago next Tuesday. Um, number two, Christopher Columbus. Number one, the um, printing press being invented. And there's all kinds of stuff. I love, see, this is stuff I love and, and can read all day. I know we, we got to move on. But the reason that I read that is to say that it's a big deal for us to know and embrace as, as 2017, 21st century Jesus followers. It's important for us to know the shoulders upon which we stand and to have a really deep conviction and passion and appreciation for the Husses of the world, for the Luthers and Zwingli's and Calvin's and for the nameless millions of saints that went before us that would rather lose their life or suffer rather than uh, recant. Have you ever had that thought? Okay, I wonder what I would have done had I been Huss. That's an interesting thought, right? I want to think, I would like to think that I would not have recanted. Don't know. Those of you that know me, <laughs> you're not going to bet the rent on it, I know. But, but it's just, that's, that's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of person we should want to be. Someone whose faith in Jesus is not just talk. But it, it, it is the center of who we are. And that saints 
500 years from now would be able to look back at us, not because of a skill or ability, but for a selfless love of God. And we may not be there, but hopefully these next several weeks can get us a step closer by being inspired by these people. Okay, so are you ready to hear from these seven Bible authors in the next 10 minutes? It's um. It's really cool. I'm, and and uh, I'm going to read this. This is the reason that, in, in particular, that I'm excited. This whole year, we started with spiritual formation. We spent several months uh, learning about the Holy Spirit, and we are much more spirit-activated now than we were when we began this year. Then we talked about one another relationships and so forth and so on. Then the past several weeks, the story series, this revolutionary new way we're trying to help people uh, become disciples and so forth. Uh, and so why are we doing all this? Well, there aren't many job descriptions in the New Testament, but one of the ones that is there, uh, Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, he talks about the church. And he says, now these gifts, uh, these are the gifts Christ gave the church. Uh, And he's looking at different offices, as it were, or roles in the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. And so you know that we have those people and we have lay pastors, a small group leaders, just so you know, serve deacons, lay pastors, so forth, all that. But it says their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So my clearest job description and those that are on staff and those that are the rest of your leaders is to equip, to train, to inform all of us not, that so, not so that we can do the work of the church, but so that we all do the work of the church. And so the body is built up, growing and full of love, and people are reached. And I really feel like this that we're doing right now as we close out the year, the last five uh, midweeks, we only have five more midweeks uh, of the year because of Christmas parties. And then we got the Thanksgiving. I know it's like, wow, where did 2017 go? Uh, we, we've got uh, Halloween next Tuesday and then um, Thanksgiving break and so forth. <clears throat> But I, I believe in our weakness and frailty that we have done our dead level best, our due diligence to feed you good nourishment that will help you grow and build you up. And I believe that what we're going to do in the next five weeks is serving that need well. So we're going to talk about over the next five weeks the five sole. Now that sole is, is Latin, uh, is ang- Anglicanized, uh, Englishized, as in, uh, called the five solas. And these um, <clears throat> were tenets or principles that came out of the Reformation. The first three that we're going to look at were right during Luther's time, the next two later on. But these were sort of the, the, the basic big picture concepts. So what is the Protestant Reformation about? What's your beef with the Catholic Church? And if you had to boil it down, these were the five guiding light principles of this time, okay? And the first one is sola scriptura, right? And sola, uh, just, you know, alone, it just means alone in Latin, sola scriptura uh, by scripture alone. And uh, sola fide by faith alone, We're not justified through penance. We're not absolved through uh, indulgences. But justification is by faith alone. John's going to talk about that more on Sunday. Sola gratia, by grace alone, Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that none of us can boast. And, you know, we as, as Jesus fathers can sometimes go back and forth between grace salvation and work salvation, you know. Uh, but, but in reality, and we do that in our head and in practice, but in reality, only thing that saves, no, no good work pre or post conversion saves only the grace of God. Uh, solus Christus through Christ alone, 
And then soli deo gloria, glory to God alone, not to the Pope, not to the clergy and so forth. So these were sort of the five things. Now, I read the 95 Thesis. I mean, he went off. No wonder they didn't like him. I mean, you know, 95, you are messing up in these 95 ways. Uh, And and, but just I just wish maybe John and I can talk. I wish I could think of a modern day equivalent to how revolutionary that was. You know, a thousand years of, of, of rule, papal rule, and, and just, anyway, wow, I, I gotta keep moving. Okay, Sola Scriptura. Today we're just gonna talk about one of the solas, okay? Sola Scriptura, <clears throat> and uh, it's a big deal. So, uh, Tracy helped me with some notes that I edited, so I'm gonna read these quickly. And again, I don't wanna, I don't, I know that we're, we're um, advocates of slow Bible reading. I don't have time to slow Bible read today, okay? But I'm gonna, I can email this PowerPoint to whomever wants it and, uh, so that we can slow Bible read in our time with God later. But I just want us to give a quick sort of uh, flyover. Okay, why was this such a big deal in 1517? Why was this so revolutionary? Number one, <clears throat> it said the scripture is the primary authority and not the Pope. But everybody, the, the Roman Catholic Church was so powerful, you know, Constantine converted and so forth. That was, this was pre, uh, the first pope was Leo, right? Is that somewhere 500? Is that right? 400? Okay. So it, for over a millennia, you had, had, you had popes and they were considered the voice of God. And here's this dude saying, no, scripture is over the Pope and over all these European powers, all the money and so forth and so on. So huge deal. Uh, scripture over tradition. They, one of the, the main uh, beefs that Luther had is they would collect indulgences, which were monetary payments that um, people in the church paid for absolution of their sins or lesser, you know, lesser, uh, they would suffer less punishment. And, and I mean, just think about how twisted and, and uh, just harmful and just evil that is. Uh, and, but you know how sometimes you can, something can be wrong, but if it's said enough or done enough over time, it just wears societies down and they just go along with it. Uh, and so that, that is happening today. It happened 500 years ago. It happened 500 years from now. We need to be the kind of people, hopefully, that would be able to stand up and, and, and you know, in, in a righteous way, have righteous indignation and, and stand against it. And then finally, scripture over common practices. We talked about the idea of indulgences and so forth. Um, so now, uh, I love this quote, Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. Like, it's not that I... I can not do this. I can't help but do this. And some of you know this. Sometimes God calls you and he says, you need to do this. And you know it when it happens to you. And you can't not do it. You may not want to do it. You may be intimidated by it, but you can't not do it. And I love that idea. Here I stand. I can do no other. Um, Sola Scriptura by Scripture alone. So why is this such a big deal to us in 2017? Okay, it was a big deal back then. 500 years, a lot can happen. You know, they didn't have, uh, you know, iPhones back then. So why is that a big deal to us? Okay, we still have similar, similar battles. We've got to choose, choose scripture over culture and popular opinion. 
And when everybody at work and everybody in school and your family and your parents and, uh, you know, people that influence in you, you and your relatives and everybody on social media and everybody, you know, at Costco and then, uh, you know, all the pundits on your favorite network, right, we're, so, we're in such silos, whether we're in, you know, the right or the left or the middle, everybody's saying live this way, think this way, do this. Here we are trying to hold up the banner for, I'm going to do what Jesus says. And yes, I have problems. And yes, you know, uh, my whole life is not fixed, but I choose to stand with him. He's the only one that died for my sins and rose from the dead. And even if it's not popular and it's countercultural, it's still relevant, but it inspires you to realize you're not the only one. And particularly for those of you that are studying the Bible, looking to become Jesus followers, understand it's not like we just came up with this and turning point like two or three years ago. Like you've got millennia of heroes and heroines who have paved the way for you and have paid the price and have studied and so forth. So you are joining in great company. Number two, scripture over tradition. Uh, in many churches, there are traditions that some of you grew up with that I grew up with. We can even develop, we have traditions and turning point, and many of them are great traditions like family camp, like every year at the end of uh, December, I mean, in December, we celebrate the people who became, become Christians that year and who are 10, 20, and 30 years old and so forth. It's tradition, uh, a tradition, and traditions aren't bad as long as they don't supersede the word of God. But they can, with us, if we're not careful, just like they did with them back then. Scripture over human wisdom. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the modern atheism. I'm talking about agnosticism. I'm talking about secular humanism. All of the, you know, the brilliant PhD scholars of the world that are so smart. But have you figured out how messed up the world is as smart as people are? Or how many smart, smart people do dumb stuff? <laughs> you know, it, it, there, there's not a necessary correlation. So the way I look at it is I'm going to still go with what Jesus said. I may need help. I need counsel. But that's sort of what we're saying. Uh, number four, scripture over others and my opinions, reasoning, and feelings. Have you ever had an opinion that said, if I wrote the Bible, I wouldn't write it that way? If I, were, if, if, I, if I wrote this gospel, I wouldn't do that. And so I have those feelings. Sometimes I don't want to do, I, like, I don't like passages. You know, I'd like to, you know, uh, cut them out and so forth. Uh, my feelings, sometimes my feelings get hurt. But ultimately, I choose in my, at my best self and at your best self, choosing, I'm making a decision. I choose my best thinking. Where would my life be if, if I went by my best thinking? Okay, I'm going to choose God's wisdom over my wisdom. And so this helps us with that. Okay, uh, remember, does anybody remember this um, that we did a while back? We did that. I'm glad Jen remembers it. Very cool. It's this, it's this uh, we got <laughs> the power of one. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> but we talked about the idea that um, we, we live in a, we don't, we live in a non-Christian society where the majority of people are non-Christians, but really, and I learned this at a conference many of us went to with Annie Stanley, it's more of a post-Christian uh, reality 
the United States is more post-Christian, like, like Europe is more post-Christian, so, but we are becoming more secular and sort of following Europe in that sense. And so you, you approach things differently uh, with, an un, uh, with a post-Christian uh, society than a non-Christian, meaning that some people have heard about or had a bad taste about Christianity, and they know it exists, but they just don't think there's power there. They don't think, and, and they don't operate with, while wow, the Bible says it, therefore it must be true. And so, unlike 50 years ago, where there was more esteem for the Bible. And so, remember we said our foundation for our faith is not the Bible. It is the resurrection of Jesus, right? Okay, so we look at what Matthew, uh, Mark, uh, Luke, John, Peter, James, and Paul wrote about Jesus and about who he was, about his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the basis of our faith. From that, we go to Jesus, and then we look at Jesus' conviction about dependence on, memorization of, and honor of the law and the prophets, the old covenant, the Torah, the uh, Old Testament. And because of that, that is why we uh, respect and that is why we follow and adhere to it. But it's not just this book. It's not like this, this, this um, personality-less book. We're, we are following Jesus and we trust the testimony of authors, human authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, James, Peter, uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, Paul, upon them, Jesus, and upon them, Old Testament. Okay? So, high view of the scripture, but, but it, it, it's not the Bible. Hey, well, I do. Why do you do this? Because the Bible says that. Because we all know when you really, really think about it, the Bible doesn't say anything. Think about that. Luke says stuff. Habakkuk says stuff. Peter says stuff, but the Bible does not say stuff. The Bible is a collection of authors who said stuff. Okay? Now, I'm all for, I went to, I have a degree in theology, so I'm all for the Bible. But I'm just trying to help us with that, with that nuance, it particularly, for our own understanding, but particularly in being more effective in a post-Christian culture. Okay, so now, I'm going to speed read these passages I love them. Actually, I'm not going to be able to read all of them, but I really love these passages. Okay, so this is cool. How did Jesus feel about Scripture? Do you realize that much of the Gospels is Jesus quoting the Law and the Prophets? So if he had a high view of Scripture, right, he's the one who wrote it or through whom it was written, then that says that we should. As he uh, faced the big temptation, 40 days in the desert fighting arch enemy and our arch enemy? How does he respond? Well, I thought, well, I feel like, well, this makes sense to me. No, Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on, by every word that comes to the mouth of God. Says again, it is written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Says again, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So how did Jesus combat the temptations and the thoughts of Satan? He, he combated them with scripture, not with human wisdom. Not saying he wasn't a smart guy, right? But what a great model and example. So how do I combat different doubts and feelings and thoughts that I can have? I need to have my go-to scriptures in my holster that I can refer to to combat the temptations that I get from my enemy, just like Jesus did. Okay, so that's one view of Jesus. 
Um, on this, this next passage, uh, he's questioned, you know, the, he, this is the prelude to the Good Samaritan, parallel Good Samaritan. It says, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Look at Jesus' response. What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Now, that's interesting to me. What does how do you read it imply? It means that you may read it one way and the guy next to you may read it another way. And I love what the guy in the video said. We are all responsible to be popes. Wasn't that cool? You know what I mean by that? We are all responsible for us interpreting the word of God. That's a cool thing. That's what these, that's what Huss and these dudes died for. That's what Martin Luther said. Hey, these guys need to be able, they can read the Bible for, uh, read the writings in the Bible, the teachings in the Bible for themselves. And that's all of our responsibility. That's what a quiet time is. That's what all those things, that's what that is for. Now, a couple of quick words. I'm going to email you the PowerPoint if you want it. If you're like, man, I don't want it. I, you know, I don't need it. I got a lot of stuff going. I'm going to email it to you. Okay. Hermeneutic. Everybody say hermeneutic. Okay. It's a method or principle of interpretation. Okay, so every one of us has a hermeneutic. Guess who's responsible for your hermeneutic? Your small group leader. No. No. You are responsible for your hermeneutic. And that, what that means is you have a way of when you read something, you, you, you read it through a certain lens. We all do, based on our background, nature, and nurture. Okay? And so God created us, so he's okay with that, but we're responsible uh, for that. So, for instance, you know how people interpret the Constitution, right? And some people are traditionalists, right, when they look at the Constitution. What's the other term, the opposite of traditionalists? Can't remember what it is. Where people think, feel like it needs to be interpreted and it's a fluid document, like arguments about the Second Amendment and what does that mean in 2017? And the, anyway, point is they had a different hermeneutic. Hermeneutic's not specific to religious writing. It's just how you interpret a text, okay? So uh, this other one, which I love, this term exegesis. Everybody say exegesis. Okay, so my professor, New Testament Interpretation, there's a lot more to it than just turn to John 10, believe me. Uh, but um, he made this statement that I love. It's one of my favorite statements. He, he taught exegesis is the science and art of determining the meaning that the human author of a text intended to convey to his original audience. I love that lens through which I need to look at scripture because he said the biggest temptation you will have as a student in this class is to read this ancient letter to the Corinthian church or ancient account of Jesus' life in John and automatically interpret it in your 21st century mind. You, but you will jump to that before you sit with it to say, God, help me understand what did this author intend for the original audience? Because if we don't know what it meant to them then, we can't know what it means to us now. It'll be an example. You got a Martian and, and you tell him the term gay, okay? The term gay means something different in 2017 than it did in 1917. But if I don't know what it meant in 1917, then I'm gonna give him some misinformation, right? 
So in, in that same way, to, to have a, a deeper fidelity and love for the word, we need to develop in these areas. So that's, that's a quick commercial, uh, but understand that it's important for us to have this conviction and to be our best in this. Okay, I can't do all these scriptures. I'm just going to blow through these scriptures. I'm just going to give you the, the, uh, the references. I'm just going to email you. I'm going to email you. Okay. And, and, oh man, I had some highlights in blue. Okay, Luke, I love that he, he talks about, um, <laughs> I, I, listen to this. I have to, he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us uh, by those for whom the fir- were the first, uh, from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I had servants of the word highlighted in blue. Think about the generations of servants of the word. What a cool term. I love that church in 27th. They were servants of the word. They considered it a trust, sacred trust to honor it, to protect it, to pass it on, so forth, so on. And then he talks about how he did a detailed orderly account. You know, people who blow off. Well, how do you know the Bible has? People gave their lives. Talk about meticulous. We need to honor that. Okay. I, I got to keep going. Romans 15, endurance, hope. It's great. First Corinthians 8. <laughs> it's First uh, Corinthians 1. Paul goes off on human wisdom. You think you have a hard time dealing with your college professor. This dude was in the middle of, you know, the Stoics and the Epicureans and, you know, the Aristotle. I mean, the, the middle of Greco-Roman, you know, intelligentsia. And he says, you guys don't, you can have all this wisdom, but God's, God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. So anyway, it's very applicable to me. I wish I could go off on I don't have time. It's really good stuff. Uh, preaching the cross, you know, um, okay, I got it. Okay, so 1 Corinthians, I, I look at it. You can look at it later. 2 Timothy, we know this from the, the word study. Uh, don't marry James 1. Don't merely listen. Do what it says. Uh, but uh, uh, I can't do it. Right. It, Doing makes the difference. Doing makes the difference. Like, not, the difference between being a religious person and being a Jesus follower is not in what you hear, it's what you do. So, doing makes the difference. He says, you will be blessed in what you do. Okay. Uh, that's my favorite. I got, well, I have to read this one. You want to know my favorite? This is my favorite, okay? This is my favorite. So, Isaiah says, all people are like grass. <laughs> All their faithfulness like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. And then that tr- you look at, here's Martin Luther. Could he have imagined 500 years later? I mean, we're, we are flowers. We're grass. He says, the grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Long before we're here, long after we're gone, this word will endure so the scripture. And then, you know, 650 approximately years later, more than even between us and Luther, right? Peter quotes Isaiah. For all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you, to Christians suffering persecution throughout Asia. But I just love the fact that he's reaching back 600 years and, and having to deal with the same stuff. And we're doing the same thing in 2017. We are not alone. And there's a great cloud of witnesses that's gone before us. Got to read this one. 
your word, right? David is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. So uh, that's all, all the passages. Love for the word of God. Appreciation for those who gave their lives so that we could have our own hermeneutic and be, do our own exegesis. So now what? One assignment and then we're out. I'm going to encourage you to choose, memorize, and tell your group your go-to scripture. Meaning, you need to have, and Martin Luther had one, which actually John's going to talk about, Romans 1, right? One, Romans 1.17. The dude was a genius. He, like, translated. He knew Greek and Hebrew, right? Translated the Bible into German. Like, wow. You know, uh, <laughs> but... He had a particular scripture in Romans 1 that changed everything for him. And, and we need to have a scripture. Like, I love 1 Peter. All men are like grass. Helps me to have perspective. This too will pass. Kevin, you are just a mist. You are here for a minute. Try to get it right. You don't, but don't worry. Hey, ultimately, it's going to be by the grace of God. Try to be a good steward. Be open-handed because you're just a part of a chain. So, but all of us should have, even if you're new, find one that, that God speaks to you and claim it as your own and put it in your holster so when Satan comes at you, you know what to say. Something else that's really cool, by the way, if you want to do a great Bible study, is do an Old Testament study of all the, when, when Jesus says it's written, it's written, it's written in Matthew 4, look at all the passages he's referring to. Or in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says it is written, uh, the food, uh, God will frustrate the wisdom of the world or what, uh, uh, of the nations, whatever. Look at those passages and see what they're referring to. Okay, so here we stand. We can do no other. Turning Point Church. Um, I like that. I came up with that. That's original, huh? I came up with that. That's who, we're try- that's who we're trying to be on our best day. That's who we're trying to be. And then uh, next sun- this Sunday, uh, come here, John, and uh, share about 500 years of Reformation, Martin Luther. So that's it. Thank you. Speed reading and uh, live long and prosper.